0: Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at ten thirty a.m. both online and in person. Now, in person, we gather at our building on Hill Road. We're here in the Oak Grove neighborhood, serving Oak Grove, Gladstone, Milwaukee. We are uh, have kids' church. We have worship through prayer. And song, we gather together in community to study the Bible together. And then we meet throughout the week in small groups. And we have small groups that meet on Wednesday nights online. Uh, We have a small group on Tuesday nights, a small group on Sunday mornings. And we have youth group that meets at 7 p.m. here at the church building on Tuesday nights. You can follow us at Faith on Hill on social media. And if you search Faith on Hill Church on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, you can find all of our online content. And of course, we have the Sunday live stream on our website, faithonhill.com. Com. We're going to continue our study in the book of Joshua, and today we're going to look at chapter 4. Well, Joshua chapter 4, in verse 1, says, When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan River, then Yahweh said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe. The nation of Israel was divided into twelve tribes, representative of the twelve sons of uh, Jacob you had Abraham, Abraham had a son named Isaac, Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And these are the basis of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the Levites uh, were the priestly tribe, and they kind of didn't get a share the way everybody else did. They didn't get the land partitioned to them. They got cities within the land, but they were spread out all over, uh, all over the land of Israel so that they could serve as priests, and we might think of them as pastors to the nation. And so Joseph, you might know of him from the, you know, Prince of Egypt and all that. His two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, got their share. There's no tribe of Joseph. There's the half tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. So that's kind of how this all works. And one representative from each of the 12 tribes goes out into the middle of the river. And verse 3, God says, tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River, right where the priests are standing. So before this, God had told them, if you remember last week, that the priests were supposed to go out into the Jordan River, and as they stepped foot into the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan River stopped flowing, the ground dried up, and the people of Israel were able to cross the Jordan River on dry ground. And the priests stood out there the whole time. And the people were not to come within 3,000 feet of the priest, except for these 12. And they were allowed to go near And collect twelve stones. And I would imagine they were as big as they could find. Twelve stones from the middle of the water, you know, where the waters of the Jordan River normally ran. And take these twelve stones and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. And he said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God. In the middle of the Jordan, and each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel, and serve. This is to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, "What do these stones mean?" you tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. When it crosses, uh, when it crosses the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off and these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them, and they took the 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. And as Yahweh had told Joshua, they carried them over with them at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. So what the writer is saying is you know you can still go see this spot you can still go check this out and now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the jordan until everything that yahweh had commanded joshua was done by the people just as moses had directed joshua the people hurried over and as soon as all of them crossed the ark of the lord and the priests came over to the other side While the people watched, the men of Reuben, Gad, the half tribe of Manasseh, crossed over ready for battle in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. Now, we said last week no one really knows how many people made up the people of Israel at this point. It could be as low as 600,000, and it could be as many as 2.5 million. This 40,000 ready for battle are just from these two and a half tribes. So if you say, if you're averaging, you know, you can kind of get an idea. I don't think it matters. The idea is more important than how many crossed is this. It's that they crossed. Their families were already settling down east of the Jordan River in in the area that we might now think of as like the Golan Heights uh, in Israel. They were settled down. They were getting ready to start their farms and their vineyards and have their livestock graze, but they weren't done. They had obligations to the family. And so they sent over their fighting men and their fighting men led the charge. They were the people at the front of the line defending the people as they came in case they were attacked. And they were showing by being in the front, we are with you. So, It says in verse 14 that that day Yahweh exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they stood in awe of Moses. Now, Joshua is a new guy. He's not new on the scene. Everybody knows who Joshua is. He was Moses' right-hand man, second in command. He was one of the 12 spies. He was one of the two of the 12 spies, the only two, who were faithful to God, who said, hey, we can go and take this land that God has given us. Joshua was known, but he hadn't been the leader. Moses had been the leader for most of their lives. In fact, for some, we might even say almost all the people of Israel. Moses was the only leader they had ever known. And here comes Joshua along the way. And what it makes clear here is that Joshua now has the authority to command and lead the people at the same level that Moses did. But it wasn't because of anything he did. It only was because of what God did in their presence now, I think people mistake this whole thing as a, as a talk about leadership. And, and here's Joshua, and he's the leader, and this is a whole message on leadership. I don't think that's what this is about. Let's keep reading and find out why. Now, it says, Verse 17, Joshua commanded the priests come up out of the Jordan as the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And no sooner had they set their feet on dry ground than that the waters of the Jordan returned to the, their place and ran at flood stage as before. Now, on the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of the Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones that they had taken out of the Jordan And he said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean, tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground for the Lord, your God dried up the Jordan before us until we had crossed over. And he did this so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of Yahweh is powerful. And so that you might always fear the Lord, your God. When the Amorite kings, chapter 5, verse 1, when the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how Yahweh had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts melted with fear, and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. Meaning, they were preparing to fight. They knew that these invaders were coming. They were getting ready. And when they heard that God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the same God that we believe in, had done this great work, their their fight went out of them. And that gave the people time and peace to get settled, get established in the land before they head to Jericho. God is working even when the people didn't see it until after the fact. Now, I said a minute ago that I don't think this is about leadership. And I would say that a majority of the Bible studies and sermons I've ever heard on this chapter kind of tend towards leadership. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's a fine chapter to talk about leadership. But I don't think what it's about. I think it's about testimony. I really do. I think it's about testimony. Why do you take the stones out of the river? Other than what well, I mean God told them to do it. But, but why? Why did they take up the stones out of the river? And, and it says that uh, they won for each of the tribes of Israel and they took these stones and they took them out and then as God had commanded they piled them up at the place they camped that night which was the area known as Gilgal. So there they are, they, they camp, they establish these stones and it says they're still there to this day. Now they are not there today. But in the time of the writing of the book of Joshua and later down into the generations, this was sort of a memorial. Um, the same as, you know, you can go out into the field in Pennsylvania and see the Flight 93 Memorial. Uh, you can go uh, to Pearl Harbor and see the wreck of the Arizona. You can see where we're Significant events happened in human history, and this was one of their great memorials that you could go there and see. This is the spot where God brought our people across. And He says, In the future, when your children ask, then you can tell them, This is the place where the Lord your God did this great thing. Now, remember, I said this is about testimony. It's about testimony and reminder. The first is to ourselves, that for the rest of their lives, they could tell what they experienced, but they could also go back and remember and remind themselves. They could could go and see the place where this great thing had taken place that they had been a part of. You know, you need these things for the hard times. You need to store up reminders of the work that God has done. Because in the easy days, it's easy to trust God. In the easy moments, it's easy to say, oh, God's done this, God's done that, he will take care of me. It's the hard moments that you need to go back and remember the memorial stones where God did his work. That time that God delivered you, that time that God moved powerfully, that time that you saw the strength of the Lord in your life, that time that Jesus was so real, that the Holy Spirit was moving so mightily, you need those moments so that you can cling to them and stand firm when you're not feeling it, when it's hard to see, when it's hard to remember. When everything around you seems to be going the wrong way, you can stand firm and say, I know the God that brought me across the Jordan River. I know the God who caused my feet to walk across on dry ground. I know the God who held the waters at bay. That is the Jesus that I know. And in this moment of doubt and confusion and storm and uncertainty, that is the same Jesus who I believe in in this moment this whole thing certainly helped Joshua's leadership. But for the vast, everybody else, the vast majority of the people, hundreds of thousands, millions of people had nothing to do with Joshua's leadership. It had to do with establishing testimony for themselves and their personal faith in God. It also had to do with the future. When your children ask, this is the place. The stones were meant to be a living memorial, a living reminder, something that will provoke Questions. Kids ask questions all the time. Hey, what's that about? What's going on there? And we have the opportunity to tell the story. Why is it that we do this? Why is it that we live here? Why is it that this is what we do every Christmas or Easter? This is what we do every Sunday. Why is it? And we can tell the story. Hey, you know what? We used to be these people or our family was these people or some point this is when our family Turned to God. At some point, this is when we stopped rebelling and this is when we started following Jesus. And we can pass on the story of our own Jordan River crossing. We can pass on the story of our own experiences of faith, of the power of God. We can tell future generations, our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, our spiritual children, this is what God has done. You know, I don't know if you know the story of our group of churches. Um, Faith on Hill is one of the founding churches in our denomination. And what happened was in the in the mid-60s, there was a big move nationally to join with another group of churches. And the, the pastors and the leaders of, of our denomination, and the, the not just the pastors and the leaders, but just average church-going people, they said, we can't do it. We can't do it. The the church across the street or the church three blocks over that's part of this group you want to join with. They don't believe that Jesus is real. He was just kind of a good idea. Or they don't think he was literally the only way to God. Or they don't believe that Jesus was really born of a virgin. And they don't really know if the Bible is true. We just, we don't have a a partnership, a commonality. We're not, we're not connected. It seems different. We can't join with them. And pastors were risking their retirement. Some pastors who were just years away from retirement, um, they risked their retirement. Churches risked their buildings. The reason we're here in Oak Grove and not in downtown Milwaukee is because the denomination, we were one of two churches, they wouldn't let us keep our building. We had to go build somewhere else. And so our church, the the leaders and the people who were here at the time stepped out in faith and they bought the property here and they built the building and they said, we're going to be here and this is where we'll tell people about Jesus. Nobody is left who was there. Winnie McCord was the last one still alive and with us. And I got to hear her talk about it several times. She passed on to me and to us the great things that God did in 1968 and 69 and 1970 here in this place. And she passed them on to us. And there are those who are still around from the, the 90s, and they pass on to us what God was doing in the 90s. And we will pass on what God is doing in the 20-teens and the 2020s as we pass on to the next generation. This is the story of how God has worked in our families or in our church or in our community so that they may believe, so that they may be strengthened, so they may know the right way to go. You know, one of the things that's really prominent here is the compare and the contrast. The people of God being led by the power of God versus, at the beginning of chapter 5, the Amorite kings, the Canaanites. And the people of Israel throughout their whole history, every generation was tempted to follow the ways and follow the false gods and follow the practices of these Canaanites or these Amorites or the Philistines or whoever. And what God is establishing here is, here is a place to remind people and for you to easily tell the story to the next generation. This is where the true power of God worked. And these other gods that the other people follow are false and powerless. Finally, I think there's something to think about here. When the Bible says, honor your father and mother, why is that? One of the insights that we can gain into it is not from ancient Israel or ancient Middle Eastern cultures, but from current cultures here in America. Native American, Native Alaskan, First Peoples in Canada. And you see the great respect that they have in their culture for elders And it gives us insight into what's going on here. Because for most of human history and for most of human experience, the primary, if not the only source of passing information from one generation to another is parents and grandparents telling children, village elders, tribal elders, community elders, passing that knowledge on to the larger community. One of the things that's very interesting, I sat in on a lecture several years ago, about how we have this idea that, oh, you know, they're the storytellers and the village storyteller, whoever told the most interesting story, they got to be the village storyteller. And that's where we get the myths of God and Yahweh and the Bible and all of that. What they found is that cultures that were committed to uh, verbal, auditory, oral tradition, they had a history and, and, and their transmission is incredibly accurate. You know, the storyteller couldn't come and tell the story and be like, ooh, he's telling it a little. People would say, hey, wait a minute, that's not how it goes. Because there was community reception that the person could get up at, at, the, at the festival or the feast and recite the story, recite the saga. And if they got it wrong, somebody would say, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. Hey, wait a minute, that's not what's going on. And they would held them accountable for the, the story they told. I don't claim to be an expert in oral transmission or oral history. uh, I just know that I've studied enough, I've read enough to feel confident that these ancient oral traditions are reliable. Now, we don't live in that same society. We don't live in that same cultural experience. And I'm not going to tell you one's better or it'd be better if we went back to something. I'm just going to say, this is the world we live in. I have no illusion that I am the primary or sole source of information to my children or to the next generation. I, as as a father and a husband, I am not that. Your kids, my kids, your grandkids, your nephews, your nieces, the neighbors, the next generation get information from all kinds of places. And if we sit there and pretend that it's not that way, we are putting our heads in the sand. What we can do is be listeners. We can listen to, hey, I got this. And instead of saying, no, that's wrong. Don't think that way. We can be listeners and we can be question askers and we can help the next generation process. Okay. So, so you saw this, you read that, you heard this. Let's talk about that. Let's have a conversation. We can help them process. You know, the reason elders in in like, you know, native Alaskan culture are so honored is because if you're still around, you're the best hunter if you're still around, you were the best at doing this or that. And they pass on wisdom and knowledge. Many of us don't know. Our kids, our grandkids know more about technology than we do. You know, if you're, if you're in the generation before me, you never had any of this technology. You're, you're foreign to this. You've had to learn it, but it's not natural to you. My generation was the first to get it, so we sort of bridged the gap. But everyone after me, they're, they're digital natives. They they've only known technology. They can't fathom life without everybody having the internet in their hands and and instant access to information and communication. They can't process that. They can't process what it was like before the microwave, before uh, air travel, before everything that's gone on. So it's not like we can pass on knowledge that they can't easily get on their own. But we can help to process. We can help to say, hey, Okay, you have all this information, what are you going to do with it? You have all of this knowledge, what happens next? What does that look like in real life? How does that play out? That theory is nice, has it been tested anywhere? One of the things that's interesting to me is that everywhere that I have seen God tested, he's been proven true. So maybe I'm not going to pass on the knowledge to my children, but maybe I'll help them to process and understand it. And there is knowledge that only I can pass on to my kids. Only my wife can pass on to the kids. Only you can pass on to your children, grandchildren, the next generation, wherever you have influence. And that's what God's done in your life. Only you can tell your story. And there are monuments. This might sound dumb. But every Christmas we put up our Christmas tree and we put up the ornaments and I start telling stories because the ornaments uh, that I inherited um, from the tree that we had when I was a kid, right? But we have these ornaments that I inherited and I start to tell stories around this, this was from this Christmas. Uh, this was this happened. This is why we have this ornament. We started collecting ornaments of trips we've taken as a family. And so when we pull those out, oh, do you remember this trip? And we can tell that story, especially the ones where they weren't old enough to really remember, That's what's going on here with these monuments. These stones that are put out because when the tough times come, we need to remember. And when a future generation comes who wasn't there, right? Every year at 9-11, it becomes more apparent. No one who's in high school today, no one who is in college today was alive for 9-11. No one remembers it, right? If you were 30 years old when 9-11 happened, Right, you, you, you maybe remember it vaguely, but it, you were a child. You were a little kid. 9-11 is, is something that's fading from lived experience to communicated experience. That's what's happening. You know what? There's only way for, for some of us to know the things that God has done in the past is for us to transmit, hey, this is what God did. This is how God moved. This is how we've seen God in work. And you might say, well, what does this have to do with me now? Well, first of all, every person of faith has somebody that they can pass what they have seen and they've experienced. You can pass it on to somebody. I believe that firmly. Secondly, I would say this. We received from the apostles the witness of Jesus Christ. We received from the apostles that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. That transmission of knowledge has been given to us. And the choice that we have is how do we respond? The choice that we have is do we say when we see the evidence, and here's the evidence the memorial stones, when we see the evidence and we hear the testimony, when we hear of what God has done, how do we respond to that knowledge? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, this is a transition moment for the people of Israel. They're crossing in from outside and wandering and lost in the wilderness, and now they're entering into the promised land. It's a new season, new purpose. And they're saying, here, I'm going to leave this testimony to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation so they may know what God has done. And we have received the testimony of the apostles. We've received the testimony of previous generations of faith that we have seen God change lives, that we have seen God transform communities and restore broken relationships and bring people out of addiction into freedom. We have seen the work of God. So why can't we see that work in our day? Why can't you see that work in your life? And the answer is there is no reason why you can't. There is no reason why God can't save you because he saved us and we received the testimony of how he has saved so many that have come before God bless you. We'll see you this week in the small groups, and we'll see you next week at 10.30 a.m. as we gather together again.